0: worship team for the wonderful set this morning. What a worshipful time in which we uplifted our Lord and Savior and continue to do that now through His Word. If you'll join me in your Bibles, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll read the entire chapter, if you'll follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible... For land that has drunk the rain, and that often falls on it and produces a crop, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Since he, had no greater, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that has been set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for the privilege that you give us to meet together, to worship, to praise, to honor you, for you alone are worthy. We thank you this morning for your word and the truths that are there to guide us, to direct us, to encourage and strengthen us, um, to bring conviction and change in our lives that is needed. Lord, please be with us this morning. May your Holy Spirit um, open our hearts and our minds to receive the truths that you have for us. May he move freely to accomplish the purposes that you have already set in place for this morning. Lord, please make your word alive to us. Bless us with understanding and discernment, and we pray, Lord God, that you will be glorified through it all. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. In in 2001, while serving as the youth pastor of Mounts Run Baptist Church in Zionsville, Indiana, I happened upon a small group of teenagers. They were huddled together in a corner, and they were whispering something, obviously planning something that was inappropriate. Being being of an upfront personality, I interrupted the conversation and demanded an explanation. In 2001, it was okay to interrupt teenagers and to demand an explanation. We would obviously handle that differently today, but in 2001, you could do that. The teens in this small clique that were huddled together in the corner, you can kind of picture them over here in the corner by themselves with the rest of the teenagers out here, the teens that were huddled together mumbled their way through several inconsistent and untrue explanations. Finally, one of the boys stepped forward and explained what they were planning. I won't bore you with the details this morning, but I can assure you that it wasn't something pleasant or good. I proceeded to reprimand these boys and instruct them about God's attitude and justice towards such, such actions. After reprimanding and instructing this click of this small clique of teenagers, I pulled a few of them aside who were a part of the conversation and a part of the reprimand and a part of the instruction, but they weren't a part of the problem. I pulled them aside and I began to encourage them and and strengthen them in the fact that I was blessed by their positive attitude and and not their rebellion, by their submission towards the instruction that was given. I encouraged them that walking in humility and walking in obedience was what the Lord demands of us and requires of us. And I encourage them to continue to walk in the paths of righteousness and to do the right thing. I tell you this simple story about something that happened in my life many years ago because Hebrews 6 gives us this same type of interaction between God and mankind. You'll notice in the first eight eight verses of this chapter that God presents one of the harshest reprimands in the entirety of Scripture. There probably isn't a harsher reprimand that Maybe be some that would be comparable, but this is one of the most harsh reprimands towards what we would call the religious crowd in all of Scripture. Namely, his reprimand is simply this that even though an individual or a group of people have been blessed greatly by God, even though, as you saw in um, the first few verses, that they have experienced the working of the Word of God, they've experienced the working of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the blessing of the community of faith. Even though that they have experienced all of these things, the author of Hebrews brings out the fact that they, even though they've experienced these things, are not saved. They are not followers of Jesus Christ. They are not safe. They are not secure. They are not um, eternally safe in the arms of Christ even though that they've experienced all of these things, and we would look at people like this and we, and we would say, surely these are Christians because they've experienced so much blessing from the Lord. And these might be like the Apostle Paul before he was converted, seen as some of the most religious people in the world. The Apostle Paul was, the Bible says, above measure, A- above everybody else. He was, he was religious, he was right in his ways. He had all of his T's crossed and his I's dotted in regards to his religious beliefs and his functions and his, his discipline in his life, yet he was an unconverted man. He was a man who was destined for eternal damnation, yet walked in ways that we would look and say, This surely is a believer. As I mentioned last week, the story in Matthew 19 of the rich young ruler who comes to the Lord and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the conclusion of that story is the Lord says to his disciples, it is is as impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples' response is simply this, if you've blessed them so much and they can't be saved, then who can be saved? And the Lord says to them, with man, it is impossible. But with God... All things are possible. The first eight verses describe this for us. He describes a group of people who have been extraordinarily blessed by God. Not just physically blessed by God, but the the context here is spiritually blessed by God. He doesn't talk about them having riches of money and possessions. He talks about them having riches of experiences. Riches of spiritual experiences. A wealth of spiritual experiences. Yet, having not responded to these experiences in humility, having not responded to these experiences in repentance, having not responded to these experiences in faith, they were unsaved, unconverted. You see, the whole world experiences these spiritual experiences. God pours out his blessings on the world around us every single day. Yet, if we do not respond to his work in our lives in repentance, if we do not respond to his work in our lives in faith, if we do not respond to his work in our lives in humility, we will walk through life with tons of spiritual experiences and one day stand before a just and holy God and find condemnation and not forgiveness. Find justice and not mercy. And this is the battle that Matthew 7 deals with when he talks about, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And have we not performed many miracles in your name and done many mighty deeds? And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And these were the most religious of the religious. Yet the Lord did not know them. My purposes this morning are not to rehash the justice of God. It's not to rehash the condemnation. It's not to rehash God's reprimand on these religious people. But my my purposes this morning is to tell you the rest of the story. In the same way, as I mentioned in the opening illustration, that the I took aside this group of kids who were obviously submissive and obviously trying to do the right thing, and I began to instruct them differently. In that same way, the Lord transitions in this passage of Scripture right in the middle of the chapter, and he al- it's, it's almost like you can picture it in this way, that God sets aside this group. He's got this larger group, and he's reprimanding them harshly. And he's telling them, "Just because you're religious and just because you've had all these experiences doesn't make you a Christian." And then he pulls this group aside and he begins to instruct this separate group, this unique group, this distinct group. And he begins to instruct them differently. He begins to encourage them. And the transition that's in the middle of this chapter, starting in verse five or verse nine. God pulls aside this group of people who were present for the reprimand, but yet not involved in the rebellion. They were present for the reprimand, they yet they were not involved in the rebellion. He pulls them aside in order to encourage them, to reassure them that the reprimand was not meant for them. It is clear from this passage of Scripture that the reprimand and condemnation That is given in the first eight verses. That's a very strong reprimand. It is clear in this passage of Scripture that the author, or we could just say God, is concerned that the reprimand might cause some doubt, might cause some questions, might cause some concerns amongst those who are true believers. So what does the Lord do? He pulls those people aside and he blesses them. He reassures them. He comforts them. And we experience this on a regular basis because the word of God is full of reprimands. It's full of, it's full of condemnations towards those who are lost. And as we preach the word of God and explain the word of God and instruct from the word of God on a week by week basis, we talk about condemnation and we talk about the justice of God and we talk about the holiness of God and we talk about the wrath of God. Because it is who God is. It, is. it is His character. But in those moments, God is doing a, God is doing a unique work in the heart of his, of his children. God is doing a special work in those, in, in those who are His. And this is what He shows us here in this passage of Scripture. He says, and I'm going to just read it to you again and we'll unfold it. Verse number 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, and what's he referring to? He's referring to these first verses, this condemnation. This, this, this way is referring to a pattern of speaking. Though we speak in this way of condemnation, though we speak in this way of reprimand, he says, yet in your case, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to Salvation. There are three simple things that the Lord does here in this passage of Scripture for that distinct group, for that separate group, for that group that has, again, been a part of the reprimand. They, he, they've heard the condemnation. They've heard the, the harshness of God. They've heard the, 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 the wrath of God being, being poured out on this group of religious people. They, they've heard about it, and, and, and perhaps they're sitting there thinking in their minds, I, I wonder if I'm in that group. I, I was thinking this week as I was walking through this passage of Scripture, I was thinking about how timeless the Scriptures are. Because this week, people had come to me and said to me these very things, Pastor John, based upon your sermon last week, I've been concerned about where I'm at. I've been concerned about where I'm at spiritually, about where I'm at with God, about where I'm at for for eternal purposes. It doesn't, it repeats itself. God's word is true from generation to generation. The realities of it repeat themselves over and over again. My heart for you this morning is if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, you will be reassured by these scriptures, that you will be comforted by these scriptures. There are three things that the Lord does that are helpful in this process to help us, encourage us, strengthen us, reassure us of where we're at. So if you're taking notes, just follow along with me. He says this, though we speak in the same way, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things. The first thing that the Lord does to reassure them is he reassures them by claiming them for himself. He uses a very unique word that's found several times in in the scriptures but never found in relation to anyone ex, except for believers. The Lord uses a term to describe this small group of people, he calls them he calls them beloved. He calls them beloved. He he refers to them in such a way as to draw them into this family-like. It's almost like saying to somebody, if it was a son, you would say to them, son. Or if it was a daughter, you would say to them, daughter. You're you're using a term. The Lord is using a term here that is to describe the family relationship between the one who is speaking and the one who is hearing. So he uses this term to, to, to remind them of who they are, number one, and he uses this term to remind them of whose they are. He calls them beloved to draw them in, to remind them who they are, and to remind them whose they are. And there are times in our Christian life where we feel that condemnation we feel that, um, that wrath, that harshness, and we have to be reminded of the grace of God. We have to be reminded of the goodness of God. We have to be reminded of the fact that God calls us his children, and as his children, God loves us, and God cares for us, and he's never angry with us, and he's never harsh towards us, and he's never wrathful in how he treats us. We've got to be reminded of those truths, and especially when we're 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 living in a world of wickedness, where wickedness must be called out, and sin must be must be dealt with, and the loss must be told of the of the wrath of God, and and the loss must be told about God's justice and God's wrath. We must know who we are. If you're wrestling this morning with who you are in Christ, when you hear those comments and those wrathful texts of Scripture, you will struggle with whether or not that wrath is meant for you. You will not walk in confidence. You will not walk in boldness. You will not walk in surety of your eternal destiny. He reassures them who they are, and he reassures them of who he is or whose, or whose they are. This term just simply means well-beloved, dearly-beloved, or favorite. Again, it is a term that's meant to describe to us a family. It's, again, like calling your son, son, or your, or your daughter, daughter. Your children, I, I've had this happen before in my life, too, where my children were involved in a group of kids that they shouldn't have been involved in, and they were perhaps doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and I would come into that situation, and I would be really, really hard and harsh and, Judgment and justice, this should not be happening. And then I would draw my own kids away, and I would say to them in a soft, kind, loving way, direction. You ever been there before? You've had that happen before, haven't you? This is what God is doing in this context of Scripture. He's pulling his own children aside. It's a comforting comforting passage. He's, He's pulling them aside, and he's reminding them of who they are. And he's reminding them of who he is. And he's reminding them of what family they belong to and what they represent and what they should live for. He reminds them of these things. And in doing so, he reminds them of of his love for them. Galatians, there's two passages of scripture that deal with this. And I'm, I'm gonna just turn to Galatians 4. If you wanna join me there, you're welcome to. Just a few pages to your left. Galatians 4, not a few a few, maybe 50. <laughs> In Galatians 4 and verse 6, the Bible says, And because you are sons, God hath sent his, the spirit of his son into your hearts. So because we are the children of God, God has sent his, the spirit of his son to live inside of your heart. So now you are, a, now you are the son of God. And he says that the spirit that lives within you cries out, Abba, Father. And the term Abba, Father, again, is just another very relational, very family-related term to, to show intimacy that we have between us and the Heavenly Father. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us of that relationship, constantly reminding us of that relationship that we have with the Heavenly Father. He cries out in our hearts. He reminds us of that intimacy that we have with God. Romans 8, 15 through 16 tells us the same thing. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are, we are assured, God reassures us of our relationship with him by reaffirming that we are his Just think with me for a moment of times in your life where you were doubtful, where you were struggling maybe with your eternal security, with your salvation, with your relationship or walk with God. And your focus needed to be transitioned from what you're doing to Christ and what he has done and how he has made you one of God's children. So this this talk, this conversation of of beloved or, or child or son or daughter is meant to draw us in to understanding that I'm gonna deal with you differently than I'm gonna deal with them. I'm gonna treat you differently than I'm gonna treat them. You are my children, you are my sons, and you are my daughters, and, and they are not. The Lord tells this same group of people in John 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil, the devil. Here, he draws us in. He comforts us with this mind, with the truth that you are my children, you are my sons, you are my daughters. And these are the things that comfort us in those moments of difficulty. These are the things that comfort us in those moments of doubt. And it's not something that just comes from the outside, but it has to come from the inside. It has to be the Spirit of God comforting your heart. If the Spirit of God is not comforting your heart that you are a child of God, then you do need to be concerned that you might be in this first group of people that he reprimands and harshly shows wrath towards. But if the Spirit of God is confirming in your heart, no, you are one of God's children. I find it it interesting sometimes how quote-unquote professing Christians who are supposedly really, really mature, when you preach a message on the wrath of God, they are very unsettled. And they're very scared. And I think to myself, what's missing? If the Spirit of God is within them, reassuring them, no, you're my child, they should be able to sit under a message that preaches on the wrath of God and have it not unsettle them because they're comforted by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what's inside of us, warming us to the fact that we're okay. It's okay. Yes, God is wrathful, but you're under his grace. Yes, God is just, but you're under his mercy. It's the spirit of God that within inside of us that reassures us of who we are in Christ. And if you experience the wrath of God or hear preaching about the wrath of God and there is no assurance inside of you, then there should be some consideration of where you're at spiritually, some true consideration of those things. So he reassures them, first of all, by claiming them for himself or Another way of saying that is he reassures them by reminding them of who they are and reminding them of whose they are. The second thing that he does is he reassures them by clarifying to them their fruits. He points out to them some fruits that have been produced in their life, some changes that have taken place in their life already. And there are two two distinct terms used here to, to unfold this. He says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel assured of better things. So he says that, first of all, that word sure there means he's, he's confident, he's convinced. Something that this group of people that the author is writing to has convinced the author that these are children of God. There's something about them that has convinced him that these people can be spoken to differently than this group over here that's just simply religious. It's so important to note that, and he uses this term twice in this text, that they showed something, that they showed something. There's something that was coming out of them that the author of Hebrews knew was not from them. There was something spiritual about them. There was, there was something fruitful about their life that he knew, the author knew, this is not of the flesh, this is not of the devil, so therefore it must be of the spirit. So he separates them into a different group, and he encourages them with, you're producing fruits, you're producing fruits, you're producing fruits. I'm convinced That by the fruits that you're producing, that you don't belong in this group over here that I've just condemned, but you belong in this group over here that I'm here to comfort. I'm here to comfort encourage and reassure. He says, first of all, he says that they were convinced. The author was convinced he felt sure of better things. This term just means useful things. We saw in the last text where the Bible says that the rain falls on the ground and it produces some fruit that is useful and some fruit that is worthless. So here he says, I'm convinced that you are God's child by the usefulness of the fruits that you are producing. I'm convinced by the usefulness. I'm convinced by the fact that you are producing fruits in your life that are useful for the kingdom of God. You are producing fruits in your life that are are useful for spiritual work. You are bearing fruits that are not natural for you. It's uh, Galatians 5 where the Bible talks about the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, and it goes through that whole list And that's what makes us useful in God's hands. What makes us useful in God's hands is love, joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit in us. And then he uses us to minister. A lot of people want to skip being useful and go right to ministry. What we need to do is be focused on being useful and let him be focused on putting us into ministry. He was convinced. The author was convinced of something that they were doing that was spiritual. It persuaded him, it convinced him that these were Christians based upon the fruits, the usefulness of their fruits. I asked myself the question and asked you the question this morning, what fruits do we produce that somebody would say to us, I'm convinced that you are in this group and not this group because you are bearing this fruit. This is what he's saying here. He's encouraging this group of people that I know, you, I know you don't fit in over here with this rebellious crowd. I know you don't fit over here in this mean crowd, in this harsh crowd, in this religious crowd. I, I know you don't fit over there in that because here's the fruits that I'm seeing in your life. These are useful fruits for the kingdom of God. These are somebody, this is somebody who is laying up treasures for themselves in heaven and not on the earth. He is convinced by the usefulness of their fruits. It's been said before, if, I was on, if, if my faith was once on trial, would I have any fruits that would be able to convince the jury that I truly was a Christian? He is convinced, number one, by the spiritual usefulness of the fruits that he, he produces. He's convinced, number two, he says this, we feel sure of better things, and then he says things that belong to salvation. The word "belong" here just means to accompany. In other words, there are things that accompany salvation. So we know that works does not accompany. Sal- we, we know that works does not cause salvation. So oftentimes we try to separate the two and just really distinguish them. Right. What the text is saying is is while certain things do not cause salvation they do accompany it. That's what James is all about. It's about the fact that works are not the cause of our salvation but they do accompany it. And James tells us over and over again that faith if it's not accompanied by works is dead. It's worthless, it's useless. So the second thing that convinced the author that these were a distinct group from this religious crowd was they had, they had fruits or they had works that were companions of salvation. Things that be identified with a saved person. He was convinced of this group being saved based upon these works that they were producing I'm just going to give you a few here. He says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work. Okay, so there's one. He calls it work, right? God is not unjust to overlook your work. The word work here is the Greek word ergon. It literally means to toil and sweat. So if you think the Christian life is just about ease, you've missed the boat. The Christian life is going to be, have toil. The Christian life is going to have sweat. The Christian life is going to be difficult. It's not easy, but it is that toil and that sweat that we put forth for the glory of God that identifies us and assures us of where we are with him. He says he will not overlook our toil. He will not overlook our work. He will not overlook our labor. He will not overlook these things. They are things that are connected to our accompany salvation. But not only does he say work here, but he says And the love that you have shown for his name, and we'll stop there. The second thing he talks about is love. It's not just work and toil, but it's love associated with it. It's almost like he goes from the actions that we perform to the attitudes that we perform it with. It's not just the works that we do that affirm us as being followers of Christ that distinguish us into this group over here, but it is the attitudes that we have that also confirm that. It's not just doing the right thing, but it is wanting to do the right thing. It is having a desire, a passion to do the right thing. This refers to our emotions, our internal feelings, our attitudes. It's a love for God. It's a love for others. And you'll notice specifically, it is a love for his name. It is a love for the character of God. It is a love for his exaltation he goes on to say so first of all work is a work for the lord is a sign it is a it is a it is a companion of salvation salvation comes and work for the lord comes with it somebody who says to you i know that i'm saved but i just choose to live for myself they missed the companion of salvation The companion of salvation is works. It is what James tells us. The Bible says, if you see a person in need and you do not go and help them, what good have you done for them? You just say blessed and you you give them some encouraging words, but you don't help them. What good have you done to them? And then he compares it to faith without works as being dead. It is a love for the name of Christ. It's serving in his name. It's obeying in his name. It's working in his name. It is representing Christ well. Psalm 23 and verse 3 says, He leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. These are works that are companions of salvation that prove that we are believers. He says, He goes on and says, For his name in serving the saints as you still do. Service to the saints is also another work that's accompanied with salvation. This word here is the Greek word for deacon. Waiter, attendant, minister. It is literally a picture of of somebody in a restaurant waiting on a table. That's what we do. As Christians, we serve each other. We wait upon each other. We minister to each other as an expression of what is inside of us. We don't do it to make money. We don't do it to get famous. We don't do it to do any of those things. We do it because we love Christ. And when we love Christ and we serve Christ for those reasons, it is an expression to the world around us. It is an expression to the author of Hebrews that this is a group of believers here. If we were to be put as a church on the witness stand, they said, hey, how is your service toward each other evidence that you are Christians? Would we pass or fail? How about our love for God? How about our labor, our toil, our work for the ministry and the kingdom? How would, we, how would we stand up? If God were to take Hollister, California and take each separate distinct church and say, hey, hey, you're over here, but, but let me pull this group aside because this is my special group, would grace be in this group or would grace be in this group? Where are we at? Where are we at this is an, it, 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 it's, it's evidences of, of, of where we're at. It's proof, that work that go along with faith is proof that this is a believing crowd. He goes on to say, serving the saints as you still do. The, the, the end of that is, is, a, is, a, is a unique way of it, it written in the Greek. It, it literally means to serve the saints serving. If you were to translate it directly from the Greek, it would be serving the saints, serving. It means just continual service, that you are serving and you continue to serve. It's not not an action more than it is a lifestyle. And then patience is another one in our text, and perseverance as well. Fruit. Fruit, works, toil, patience, perseverance, all of these things are external evidences that we are the children of God, that we can be set aside and not be fitting into that moment of, of wrath. So, here, so here, here's, what, here's what the author is saying. He's reminding us of the things that have happened already. So he's like saying, hey, do you remember how impatient you were before you were saved? Now you're Now you're what? Now you're patient. Do you remember how unloving you were before, but now you're but now you 're loving? do you remember how much you lacked perseverance before, but, but now you 're persevering? What is he doing he 's encouraging the believers by pointing out the fruits that he 's already producing in their life and a true believer can look at their life and can see certain things that have been transformed by the power of the spirit of God in their life the, some of them some of us have maybe bigger ones, or some have smaller ones, some have different ones, but all of the followers of Christ have something that expresses that they have been transformed by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. And what is he doing in this text? He's just reminding of those things. He's just pointing those things out. Hey, you remember how angry you used to be, but you're not an angry person anymore, You remember how lustful you used to be, but you're not a lustful person anymore. You remember how addicted you used to be, now you're not addicted anymore. Do you you see what he's saying? Do you see how he's pointing out to them? First he embraces them as his own, and then he begins to point out things to them that they could not have changed on their own. It would have been impossible for them to change these things on their own. And he's saying to them, hey guys, listen, remember how you used to be and remember what you are today. You don't have to worry about my wrath. You don't have to worry about my justice. You don't have to worry about my condemnation because you'll never face it. Why? Because you are a child of God. You are one of God's children. These are works that that reflect that, that show us that. He reassures us by claiming us for himself. Number one, he reassures us by clarifying our fruits, identifying the fruits that he's producing us, and then lastly, he reassures us by calling us to maturity. He goes on at the end, he says, and we desire, or our desire is, um, the desire of God's heart, the desire of the author's heart, is that each one of you will show, there's that outward term again, we show that each one of us would show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end, so that we may not be sluggish but imitators of those through whom, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. Just two very important things here. The Lord's desire is, is that we would, number one, have full assurance of hope. The word hope here just means anticipation. He says, my desire is, is that you would have full assurance that you would be absolutely 100% confident in your salvation. My goal in writing this to you, Hebrews, is that you would be fully persuaded yourself as I am persuaded of you. That you would be fully persuaded and that you would be so persuaded that you would be anticipating God to do things, and that your anticipation of God doing things would stay true until the, until the end. One of the things that the scriptures point out very clearly is that those who have these spiritual experiences but, not are, but are not true Christians, that they slowly decline away from expecting the Lord, from expecting his return from expecting his tr- change, from expecting his power, from expecting his intervention, his, from expecting him at all. What does he say here? He says, I want you to be so sure. I want you to be so convinced until the end. And then he says that I want you to inherit the promise. The idea of inheriting the promise just simply means I want you to make it. The author wants us to make it. God wants us to. To make it. You say, Pastor John, I've already made it. I've already made it. Was that the Apostle Paul's attitude? Was the Apostle Paul probably one of the most spiritual men in the Bible, 13 books in the New Testament, at least we know of, that he wrote, was the Apostle Paul's attitude that I've already made it? Or was his attitude that I press on every day of my life, forgetting those things that happened yesterday and pressing forward to the reason why God has called me? The Lord says, "I want you to make it. I want you to get to the end. I want you to get to the end believing. I want you to get to the end trusting. I want you to get to the end. I want you to get to the end expecting things. Full assurance of hope and reaching the ultimate promise." Let me just tell you very quickly and, and give you a few closing thoughts. How does this happen? How do we get to the end? How do we inherit the promise? How do we make it? How do we make it? You read a book in the last 10 years called Finish, Finish Strong. How do we make it to the end? Here's what he says. He says, my desire is that you would have the same earnestness. So the first way that you're going to make it to the end is by having an earnestness within you. This earnestness literally means to be eager. It's a diligent, urgent pursuit of something. If your earnestness begins to wane, your pursuit will also begin to wane. How can we make it to the end? By having the same earnestness. Who is the same, What is the same earnestness referring to? I would submit to you indirectly that you can go to Hebrews 11, and find out what the same earnestness looks like? My call this morning, the word's call this morning, is if you want to make it to the end, if you want to experience the, the um, inheritance that God has for us, that you have the same earnestness that your earnestness connect with those of scriptures, that your desire, your passion, your eagerness for the things of God, your diligence about the things of God and your earnestness towards the things of God would, would, would match that of those in the scriptures. And then we can expect that we will arrive there. And then he says, he doesn't just say our earnestness, but he says at the end of this, be imitators of those through faith and patience, inherit the promise. He says, imitate the word imitate here just means to mimic. Find somebody to mimic that has, listen, find someone to mimic that has gotten there. You say, what do you mean? There are people that are around you that have made it a long way in the Christian faith. You see things in their life, and you're like, my goodness, that's so amazing. The patience, the perseverance, the, the fervency, the, the kindness, the humility. I mean, I see these things. You know what? Mimic that. Find somebody in your life that you can mimic, that you can follow. I know we live in a generation of individuality, right? Individuality will not get us anywhere. It is connecting us to somebody who has gone before us. Do you know how... I was thinking of the... My wife and I were talking about the Ten Commandments recently. Do you know how we stay connected to the Garden of Eden? Do you know how we can stay connected to the Garden of Eden if every generation stays connected to the last generation? But what the devil has done is he's disconnected generations so that we're further and further away from when we were in that state of perfection because we haven't stayed connected to the generation before us. We were talking about how interesting it is that the middle two commandments, four and five, not necessarily the middle two, but close to it, how that they talk about being connected to the last generation. Keep the Sabbath day holy, why? Because it happened in the Garden of Eden. Honor your fathers and mothers, why? Because it connects you to the last generation. Find somebody to connect to that is further along than you are. Mimic them. Follow them. Hebrews thirteen seven says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate it. It's, not, it's, it's no more simple than that. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we're called to maturity. We're called to grow. And this is a sign that we are God's children. In closing, while the the harsh comments of verses one through eight are difficult, uncomfortable, and sometimes confusing for believers, they are also instructive and full of opportunity. What can we learn from these scriptures? Three things. Number one, God doesn't change his harsh message to protect his people from doubt and discomfort. God doesn't change his harsh message to protect his people from doubt or discomfort. Number two, God uses these harsh moments to maximize his comforting of his people. You will never experience the maximizing comfort of God that's shown to us in verses nine through the end of the chapter unless you experience the the clear wrath of God displayed to us in verse one to verse eight. You'll never feel it. You'll never know it in the depths and the riches of it unless you experience and see God's wrath towards the wicked. You will understand God's grace towards you. God comforts, God uses these harsh moments to maximize the comforting of His children. And then, lastly, God desires these moments to grow His people. God desires the moments of setting us aside to embrace us, to bring Him to Himself, to remind us who we are, to remind us what He's already, to remind us. Of what he's already accomplished in us, right? He wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know where we stand. And then when we get to that point where we're confident, where we're fully assured, is what the text says, when we're fully assured of this, then what does he do? He calls us to grow. He calls us to grow. He uses these moments to show the extent of his compassion. He uses these moments to push us to move forward in our growth in Christ. This comfort that we've talked about this morning is a reality for all of those who have embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning and you have not embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are part of the first portion of this story. You will experience the wrath of God one day based upon the sins that you have committed and that you have defied God and you have rejected his son and you will experience his justice for those things. And it will be, it will be an eternal condemnation. This is what the Bible teaches us. If those If we do not respond to God's goodness with humility, repentance, and faith, we will face God on judgment day as judge. We will experience his condemnation and be cast, according to scripture, into everlasting judgment and fire. May I I submit to you that that day could be soon. My plea to you this morning is, is that you would recognize the goodness of our God. You would realize your unworthiness of it, that the very breath that you breathe is a gift from him, and that you would, instead of becoming proud and self-sufficient and self-righteous, that you would fall on your knees before a holy God and become humble and become repentant and become full of faith, that Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you from your sins. If you're here this morning and you have already embraced that, my challenge to you as the scripture tells us, is to grow. It's to grow. Don't stop. Don't become presumptuous on this thing. This is a journey. It is finished when you reach heaven's gates and you are glorified. Embrace the sufficiency of Christ. Embrace what he has done for you and move forward in your relationship with him. Don't become stagnant. He uses that word sluggish. Don't become stagnant in your walk with the Lord, but move forward in it. Each day, we should become closer to Christ. We should become more righteous externally, not just internally. We're perfect inside, but it's working it out that people see. If you're a believer this morning, my challenge to you is just to grow. Be what Christ wants you to be. Reveal to others what Christ wants you to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time Thank you for the comfort that you give us um, in the midst of that, of that, of seeing your wrath, knowing your wrath. We can feel your comfort. We can feel your care. We can feel you confirming in us who we are, what you have done in us and through us. And even just to, to be challenged to grow is meant to assure us of our salvation I pray that there, if there are some here today that are questioning that, that they would shore that up by dealing with you. And if someone's here that doesn't know you, that's never responded to your truth with humility, repentance, and faith, may you work that out in them today. That you would do it, Lord God, for your glory and for their good. And we give you the praise for it in Christ's name.